Well, good morning, LCM. And hello to our One Association brothers. Today's date is October 29th, 2023. As we sit in this room, this very moment, war is raging in Israel with the potential to rapidly expand and many, many new fronts. War in Eastern Europe is still ongoing as we sit here right now. As we speak, Iran is continuing to scheme in the background, and not so much in the background, is physically threatening the United States while standing in New York City, miles from where the towers fell. As we sit here now, we're on the verge, and our nation and our country, of a very real January 6th. And just to say this clearly on recording, January 6th was a contrived hoax. But there's a satanic plot that is trying to produce a real civil war, and we may just see it if we have another false election. The darkest days in our national history and the most uncertain times in the world are at hand. The financial depression that we may be entering into at the same time that we try to expand and sacrifice all, well, it may exceed that of our grandfathers by many fold. As we sit here today, in our nation, we have the most incompetent president to ever grace the Oval Office in American history. Why we're in the most volatile and uncertain of times. Saints, we want to tell you today that we are not in the final battle. But we are in the beginnings of birth pains. And every son of God should recognize the changing of the leaves on the tree. These are not coincidences. God has been stirring this body and stirring our collective body in the one association to make us wise to the times that we live in. We are not business as usual. Our God is heightening our awareness. Guys, can you look around at this local body? If you look, look around after this amazing, spirit-led, righteous conference that we all got to participate in, it is easy to see that we are living in a time of greater discipline than any one of us have ever experienced up to this point. The discipline of God's body, not just his local body here at LCM, we're talking about all of our brothers and our sisters throughout this nation and beyond. The discipline that is being expressed and lived on a daily basis is going to be the foundation for the times that are coming ahead of us. We're living in times of greater vision than we've ever experienced before. Yes. Yes. Guys, doesn't it seem like the visions that God has given us, even specifically in the last decade, are finally all coming together, and God is allowing that picture to be seen clearly by us? Hallelujah! Guys, the greater unity that we're all living in is what is going to cause these greater visions to be able to come about. Amen. And man, are we living in greater unity than we ever have before. You can see the sacrifice not of one or of a few, but of the entire brotherhood at play. And we know that that sacrifice is going to propel us into the nations of the world. We're ready for greater expansion that God has had on our plate for years now. Guys, the expansion that we are on the very precipice of, 
God has had in his mind for decades, century. He's been planning this since the beginning of time. And now we are privileged men of God who get to participate in that expansion. And it's going to take greater faith. But we can see that a greater right. kind of faith is rising inside of the one association. Hallelujah! That is equipping us to have a greater potential to affect the world than we ever have before. Can I tell you how thankful we are that we did not get sent out seven years ago? Yes. Can I tell you how blessed we are to be able to stand in the potential that we have now as a one association? To look over the nations and to say, oh, that potential has risen. No, we as an entire collective group of men, women, and children of families who love the Lord, the potential now is much greater than it ever has been before. And our commitment to the future, no matter what it looks like, no matter what the fighting and the conflict looks like, no matter whose lives and when those lives must be given in God's right timing, we have the level of greater commitment to make his plan happen in the future. Yeah, we are committed to God's timing. So today, it is our declared intention to examine the scripture and make clear the stance that the churches of God must have. Say must have. Must have. That they must have regarding the people of God, the place of God's dwelling, and the ultimate plan of God. This is a place we must stand and nowhere else can we stand Amen. except with Israel. This message will become the lifetime message of all men of God who stand in the next decade. On that, let's go to John 4 to begin. While you're turning to John 4, I'm going to take the liberty to speak to some future kings that belong to me. Titus and Benaiah, pay attention, sons. Today is a message you will preach in the face of the Antichrist. John 4 verse 22 says, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Saints, we'd like to make a bold declaration. Tell you in advance what we want you to know. Despite the errancy of years upon years of Greek fathers, theologians, and pusillanimous pastors, this truth stands as supreme. There is no salvation apart from Israel and the king of Israel, and they are one and the same. Our faith is in a Jewish king, and he will rule a very real, literal, physical kingdom called Israel, otherwise known as the kingdom of God. The coming kingdom that will smash every Gentile beastly power, leaving nothing but the reigning son of David. Look, the evil of our time being spouted from pulpits everywhere is that Israel should be tacitly supported from a distance, at best. And at worst, outright condemned. And as was mentioned before, you're watching that shift right now before your very eyes. This is coming from men who claim to love the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. This is coming from men who claim to adhere to the Tanakh or what they call the Bible, a thoroughly Jewish book. Look, while you're considering that, in light of where we stand today in history, 
we'd like to introduce to you the title of this morning's message. It's Unapologetic Zionist. While the drift of the modern church may be increasing rapidly, it is far from a new occurrence. What we want to do now is let you hear a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was speaking to Christians about facing Nazi Germany in his day. Here's our title slide for you. Unapologetic Zionist. We want to direct you to that Bonhoeffer quote on the bottom half of the screen. Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. This agrees with verses like Proverbs 24, verse 11, and so many other areas of the inspired word of God. Our faith is one of action. Our faith is one of a love for God that compels us to preach the gospel in the face of certain, hear us, certain retribution. Furthermore, church, our faith compels us to resist evil. It compels us to put an end to the slaughter of the innocent, even through the use of lethal force. So to not speak is considered an action, which is exactly why we're standing before you this morning, because we intend to set an example of what it looks like to boldly proclaim the true full gospel message in the face of evil. Hallelujah. So just to make it clear for our online audience, we are pork-eating Gentiles that love a Jewish king, and we love his Jewish people. We have invested our lives. Say lives. Lives. We've invested our lives, tens of thousands of dollars, and we plan to continue in, uh, to give an effort to see Muslims fall in love with the same Jewish Messiah that we have. Amen. Israel and all righteous moral men have a responsibility to protect the weak and purge evil from the land that preys on the weak. On that, we should go to Hebrews 10 and pick up in verse 35. Say unapologetic Zionist as you're turning there. Unapologetic Zionist. I still hear some pages turning. That sound, that sound that you hear in this room is going to be, become more important than any other sound in the days ahead. The world likes to highlight the, the triad of a musical chord. They want to hear beautiful voices, but that's not what's going to bring salvation. What's going to bring salvation is the sound of turning pages as his people search the scriptures and find just the right words. That's not in the notes. I just needed to say that because I'm unapologetic about the word of God. Are you guys in Hebrews 10 with us? In picking up in 35, it says, so do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. 
For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live, say live, live. by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But of those who believe and are saved. So the book that we just read from is called the book of Hebrews. Salvation has always been for Israel first. And it was a mystery that Gentiles could participate in salvation through Israel. Why you've undoubtedly heard many sermons on this passage. And most certainly the passage applies to your life. The primary context is to Jewish believers. Wow. We're in the days when dark and ancient powers are rising, church. And the need to stand firm has never been more apparent. As Gentile believers, it is our responsibility to stand firm with Israel to the end, all the way to Messiah's return. Look, we're going to have a good time together this morning. And we're going to develop it more as we go. But you should know, the idea of the Antichrist religion, the last days that you grew up with, about a globalist European issue was a lie and was stupid. When you think about standing firm in the last days, that is not about Texas as much as I love the great Republic of Texas. That is about one location on the earth that armies will march against. The book titled Hebrews is speaking to Jewish believers who must stand firm in that day. And as grafted in, adopted sons, we have the opportunity to stand firm alongside them. So with that in mind, we're going to take a Texas minute. A Texas Minute to explore some of the foundational scriptures that this house has taught for years and truthfully decades. That are why we stand with Israel and can stand in no other place. Our first slide is the man, the land, and the plan from Genesis 12. Just so that you're aware, we're going to do Genesis 12, 15, and 17 between the three of us quickly. The man, speaking in Genesis 12, God to Abraham says, the Lord had said to Abraham, the foundation of this, you must understand he did not appear to Norwegians. He did not appear to Texans. He appeared to a man named Abraham and spoke to him about his life and his offspring. The second, the land, he spoke to him and said, leave your country as in get out of where you are currently because you are destined to be somewhere specific your people and your father's household and go to the land I will show you. To your offspring, I give this land. Now hear the plan. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. While you're staring at this slide, you need to engage with one unassailable truth. The covenant was made with Abraham while he was still coming out of the land of the Chaldeans. This was not based upon Abraham's long meritorious track record. He's still in his father's house who was an idolater. In other words, this is what God said that he would 
do as an unconditional promise to Abraham and his offspring after him. This was not based on what he had already accomplished, and there is no if in the statement. It is Adonai saying, I will. Let's look at Genesis 15 together. As we go into Genesis 15, this is the second of three scriptures that we're going to go through in Genesis that were addressed specifically to Abram or Abraham. You have to understand how foundational and important these passages are. This is the foundation for the plan of God. This is the beginning of everything. This is God showing his hand, not just to Abraham, but to all of the heavenly realms and saying, this is what I will accomplish and you will oppose it, but you can do nothing to stop me. This is God speaking that out to everyone and the heavenly realms. I remember flying over to Suriname. I had views, all kinds of views about what the future was going was gonna to hold, what, what the end times were going to look like. And Pastor Eric was sitting next to me and he said, hey, let's go over this concept of the man, the land, and the plan. And it's going to help to iron out and refocus you on what is truly important in the end times. As you might not understand at this moment how important this concept is, but I promise you, as you look into it and you study it, you'll understand the foundation of everything else of God's plan that's unfolding after this. You'll understand what the opposition and Satan is trying to destroy, and you will also fully understand where you must stand in this process. Genesis 15, 4. The man, it says, then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your body will be your heir. We want to make this loud and clear. This is the second out of three iterations. We're talking about Abraham. We're talking about Abraham's son. And we're taking, talking about Abraham's offspring. All physically from Abraham's body is who the promise was made to. Let's move on to the land. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. Abraham is now standing on the land of Canaan, what it was formerly known as. Yeah, here's a little hint for you guys moving forward. It doesn't matter who is in the land first. It doesn't matter who is in the land last. God spoke and said, this is your land, Abraham, to you and all of your descendants after you forever. Let's talk about the plan. He took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Yeah, the plan is through Abraham and through his generational offspring that God was going to accomplish this task. You guys would do very well to remember that in this chapter, Abraham actually falls into a deep sleep. Do you guys remember that? Yeah, Abraham falls into a deep sleep and God told him, no for certain, Abraham. Does that sound like... Abraham's actions have anything to do with the fulfillment of this promise? No, in fact, they have nothing to do with it. It was an unconditional covenant that the Lord made with Abraham and all of his descendants. We're going to take our third slide 
showing Genesis 17. The reason we're showing you in Genesis 12, 15, and 17 is because this is foundational to the gospel message. This is foundational to your faith. I remember when we were going through Acts classes, Justin Treason and I were involved in prison ministry, and we were, we were given this, this foundational teaching, and we made a commitment to each other that we will never preach the gospel without starting with the man, moving to the land, and the plan. Because without it, the gospel message is fractured, and you can't say it's a full gospel message if you leave out the very beginning foundational promises, right? So that's why we're teaching. Both the people who know in this room and those who will listen in the generations to come, we have to preserve these weapons of old and put it in their hands. So let's take our third weapon of old, Genesis 17. When it speaks about the man, it says, I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. This was between Yahweh and Abraham. In the land, it says, the whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. The whole land God gave to Abraham, to his people, his descendants, and no one else. The plan, when he spoke about the plan, it says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant. Everlasting. Everlasting means that it's not going to end no matter how good your argument is. We honestly live in a society where we have petulant, grown children who think if their argument is good enough, it can undo what God Almighty has said. What pride and arrogance and how much God will humble that. Unless we get to them first. Because that's going to bring salvation to their life. Because we're going to give them this teaching and then they're going to be repentant and changed. But let's go back to the plan. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. To be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The plan was to Abraham and to his genetic line. This is the covenant that God made directly before he and his whole household were circumcised. A sign of the covenant. The promise is for all of Abraham's descendants, giving them the whole land. Say whole land. Whole land. Whole land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. And establishing that covenant as an everlasting covenant for all of Abraham's offspring for all of time. All right, you biblically literate Christians, how many witnesses are required to firmly establish something? Or if you want to be very sure, what would you do? Three. Three times in Genesis alone, with a threefold repetition of the promise, God affirms the unchanging nature of his promise with Israel. So repeat after me unconditional. Unconditional. Promise to Israel. Promise to Israel. This is because Israel is foreknown. Israel as a nation is predestined for salvation in a way that is unique from all other nations. As a sampling, this is from our Jeremiah teaching in Jeremiah chapter 52 with a whole slide string on the electos or elect of God. However, for our sample, Romans 8, 28 says... 
And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, especially his chosen nation, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Saints, we don't have time to do an overview of Romans, but you should be aware it is written to the believing Jewish population, and it is to address the interactions that they have with Gentiles. This statement in verse 30 corresponds to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those that were called, those that were justified, and those that were glorified. If you're confused and you don't understand who is foreknown in the passage, Paul helps you out in Romans 11 by interpreting who is foreknown for you. I asked them, did God reject his people by my own means? Or in Greek, hell no. It is the strongest language that he could possibly use. I am an Israelite, myself a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Paul is standing after the Babylonian captivity, standing in the first century, pointing back to the promises you just read about the man, the land, and the plan. And he is saying God never rejected his chosen nation, and I'm proof of that fact. While you're considering the fact that he was able to say that after so much time, we want you to think about the fact that you have come to serve a Jewish king. As you sit here today, as much as you believe that there is salvation in Jesus and none other, you must understand that God's process of salvation is through his chosen nation, the one nation through whom all other nations would be blessed. So to say it clearly and unequivocally, there is no salvation without Israel's salvation. The gospel is not only Israel-centric, it is Israel-dependent. You are saved through Israel and Israel's king. You are not saved apart from them, and you cannot be saved without standing with Israel and Israel's king. Yes, it is a matter of salvation, because it is the message of the gospel. The fact that you've been deceived on a national level, on a corporate level in the church body, does not change the fact that salvation comes through the Jewish Messiah, and you cannot be saved without his people. The day will be coming when all Israel will be saved, and those who are adopted into the family will be saved along with her. But that comes by standing with the family and being in the family on the day that Messiah comes back. Saints, this morning we're going to need to keep moving. But I want to say clearly, this house has a wealth of teachings that are better than a seminary degree. And they're not done just in an hour and ten minute sermon with preaching. Everything that we do is documented. You can go through and learn each of these attributes and become a master of the old weapons. Saints, it's not just to puff up your intellect. It's so that you know what to do when days get dark. To touch just one surface level of the wealth of those teachings, we're going to take three sections at this point in our message. We're going to take them from the book of Consolation that is found in Jeremiah. And it's going to address the faithless concern 
of Israel's current state. Man, how applicable could that be to you and I and the entire world at this point? To tell you in advance, Adonai's covenant with Israel is unbreakable. It is unconditional. He will bring about their ultimate righteousness and their deliverance. So as we begin in Jeremiah 33, and you can begin turning there with us, you guys are going to have to know that verses 1 through 3 are not about a Southern Baptist church. Verses 1 through 3 are not in the context of 99% of you and how you first heard these verses. They're not made for a hymnal. They're about Israel. They're about Israel's prophets calling out to Adonai both then and now and as an ultimate future fulfillment. We're going to start in Jeremiah 33, 4 together. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says about the houses in this city and the royal palaces of Judah that have been torn down to be used against the siege ramps and the sword in the fight with the Babylonians. They will be filled with the dead bodies of the men I will slay in my anger and wrath. I will hide my face from this city because of all its wickedness. Now, look at verse 6. What's that first word? Nevertheless! Nevertheless, I will bring health and healing to it. I will heal my people and will let them enjoy abundant shalom and security. I will bring Judah and Israel back from captivity. And will rebuild them as they were before. As if you're just cherry picking passages from your Bible. Playing a little scriptural roulette. And you turn, 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 boom. And you're cherry picking passages. Well, you might be uninformed. You might be contextually inadequate. You may think, great, that's awesome. Man, that passage was fulfilled after the Babylonian captivity. Now we're going to go on to continue to read in the book of Consolation in verse 8. And these next verses are clearly still about a future fulfillment of this promise. Verse 8. I will cleanse them from all all the sin they have committed against me and will forgive all their sins of rebellion against me. Then this city Come will on. bring me renown, yeah. joy, praise, and honor before who? All, all nations. nations. All nations on earth that hear of all the good things I do for it. And they will be in awe and will tremble at the abundant prosperity and peace I provide for it. You see, Jeremiah outlines that they clearly have sin. He outlines Israel's sin in his writings, but he also prophesies right alongside it that nevertheless, nevertheless, Israel will be cleansed. Nevertheless, they will be cleansed and bring Yahweh renowned in all the earth. Now that day where they are cleansed of all sin has yet to come. And there is a a a season of great difficulty that is unprecedented that awaits them. But before I pass off verse 14 to Pastor Judah, we're just going to rip the band-aid off. If you cannot, you can actually, you will not enjoy the joys 
of Israel's ultimate restoration if you refuse to not stand with them in their trials. We must stand with them in their difficulty if we want to stand with them in their ultimate restoration. There is no splitting the difference. Because we know God's promises, we know where his promises lead no matter how adverse the situations get. Just to restate the question once again, because it is quite the question for our day and age. Churches everywhere have found a way to duck out of the answer. Can you really participate in the kingdom of God that is the ultimate restoration of Israel if you do not stand by Israel during their hour of trial? The answer to that question is no, regardless of what theological justification you've used. As we pick up in verse 14, hear what Jeremiah continues to prophesy about the future. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the gracious promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. Saints, as we continue, notice that Israel and Judah are both existent and they both will be restored as one house. This is long after the Assyrian captivity, but the Almighty God says, I will fulfill my gracious promise to them. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called the Lord, our righteousness. For this is what the Lord says. David will never fail to have a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Nor will the priest who are Levites ever fail to have a man to stand before me. Hear this word continually to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to present sacrifices. Saints, we don't have time to teach about a human being in the line of David who is Yahweh, our righteousness. Instead, we refer you to our foundation studies both in Jeremiah and in Acts. But what you must grasp about this promise is that this is not just speaking about the Messiah's initial appearance. This is speaking about a day when instead of a personal salvation, instead of a personal choice, when all Israel would say, he is our righteousness. As in recognizing him as the collective savior, the collective presentation and equipping with righteousness everlasting. Saints, these events are not really in the all too distant future. What lies between us and that is the time frame when those who call upon the name of the Lord must stand firm. We are in the days when those who have called on his name, who hold to the testimony of Jesus and his word, will all be treated the same by a satanic power. We're going to pick up in verse 19 for a section in the word of God that is one of our and my ultimate favorites. It's actually hanging up in the kitchen at the shop, if you've ever seen that picture frame. But as we read it, you have to know, before we get into it, that this is a section that, one of many, but it unequivocally displays the unconditional, irrevocable nature of God's promise to completely and fully redeem his nation Israel. Verse 19, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. 
This is what the Lord says. If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that day and night no longer come at the appointed time. Good luck doing that. Then my covenant with David, my servant, and my covenant with the Levites, who are priests ministering before me, can be broken. And David will no longer have a descendant to reign on his throne. We want to tell you at this point that no sin on the part of God's nation Israel, no sin on the part of Nazi Germany, no sin on the part of Hamas, no sin on the part of a Christian theologian, no sin on the future part of a Islamic caliphate or a northern kingdom has or will succeed in breaking God's covenant with the stellar realm or God's covenant with his nation Israel. The point is that Adonai's covenant with the people of Israel, his covenant with the place and the land of Israel, and the plan for Israel that he announced to the heavens and to the earth from the very beginning still stands and it will stand forever. The next verses are going to elucidate the scheme of the enemy and God is going to tell everyone how this is going to play out. He's going to show everybody, hey, this is what the enemy is going to do, and this is how I will crush them. Verse 22. I will make the descendants of David my servant, and the Levites who minister before me as countless as the stars of the sky, and as measureless as the sand on the seashore. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not noticed that These people are saying, the Lord has rejected the two kingdoms he chose, so they despise my people and no longer regard them as a nation. This is what the Lord says. If I have not established my covenant with the day and night and the fixed laws of heaven and earth, then will I reject the descendants of Jacob and David, my servant, and will not choose one of his sons to rule over the descendants of Abraham. Isaac and Jacob, for I will restore their fortunes and have compassion on them. When it says, for I will restore them, it is a definitive statement and not a conditional promise. The fixed laws between the day and the night of heaven and earth will pass away before God fails to keep the everlasting and unconditional promise that he gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to all of their descendants after them. Saints, between Genesis and Jeremiah alone, this is clear as could possibly be. But we live in faithless and uncertain times. Men often want to split hairs and affirm the ultimate destiny of Israel, but are squeamish about affirming the current modern-day right to the land of Israel. So we're going to take a quick representative passage regarding Adonai's covenant with the very land of Israel itself. We're going to take Leviticus 25, verse 23. This is just one of many, saints. One of many, and we wanted to point out one of the most clear. The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine. Who does the land actually belong to? 
and you are but aliens and my tenants. Saints, we want to say clearly, the whole earth is the Lord's, but the physical land of Israel is specially set apart unto him. It belongs to Adonai and not to any man. The people of Israel are Adonai's chosen tenants, and no one has the right to give a square inch up to anyone else other than the tenants Adonai chose. Saints, the landlord who owns the property decides who is allowed to take up residence. This is not an issue between Israel and Palestinians. This is an issue between God and satanic forces. It is his land, his right, his determination, and it is he who said, my people Israel shall dwell here. So we want to say on recording for the world to hear, Hamas is occupying land that God himself says is for Israel and Israel alone to live in. Jordan is occupying land that God himself says is for Israel and Israel alone to live in. Hezbollah is occupying land that God himself says is for Israel and Israel alone to live in. Saints, as the Bible defines the borders of Israel, it is actually much, much further than you realize. We don't have the time this morning to draw that out for you. But your biblical students, find a Holman Bible Atlas. What you must understand today is that the disputes that are currently raging around Israel have already been settled by a divine verdict. One that descends from heaven that is Adonai's will. The land does not belong to any people or nation other than Israel to live in it as God's elect chosen tenants. This is an unconditional promise that cannot be renegotiated for any reason. No matter how rational an argument may sound or how victimized someone may feel or portray themselves on the news media. Even how convincing our own moral jujitsu can be at times when we think about dispersing people who do not belong. When you consider this, these foundational truths must square up and form up the Christian worldview of God's plan and God's plan for Israel. We're about to take a couple more slides that we're going to move quickly through. But you should be aware beforehand, as Nick covers this, that we expect every man who is going to minister to know these by heart. As we get into this next slide, we want to highlight the fact to you right now that it's so easy to get your mind and your thought life straying in one direction, get your feelings and emotions wrapped up in, oh my goodness, well, what if this happens? What are we going to do? But when you have the word of God as the foundation and basis for all of your thoughts, your directions, and everything else, isn't it amazing how clear this subject matter has gotten in just 42 minutes of preaching up to this point? It's as clear as day when you use God's word as your basis for everything. Man, it's easy to have the basis as 60% of what you do. Guys, we are challenging you because the media, the culture, the nations around us, and everybody else are so intent in muddying this subject for you, and especially for God's church. Go back to the basics. Go back to the Word of God. Go back to what He founded. Go back to the man, the land, and the plan, and things immediately become clear to you. 
Our next slide is called Mastered Ministry Training Material because all ministers who've gone through ministry training should have mastered some of these concepts. Number one is Genesis 17.8. And from that passage, it says, the land is the everlasting possession of Abraham's family. That's right. Number one, the first thing, the foundation is, if you look at the land of Israel, it doesn't belong to anybody else but Abraham's family. Because the master and owner of the land said so. So like we iterated earlier, it doesn't matter who was in Canaan first. It doesn't matter what hands, what percentage of time different people groups were in the land of Israel. It doesn't matter that Israel only got back in 1948. None of these details matter. It doesn't matter what people groups were settled in Israel to get out of that country to make sure that the Jews got into that country. None of those details matter. Do you understand? The man, the land, and the plan, and what God said is the only thing that matters. Number two, Leviticus 25, 23 clearly states that Adonai owns the land and he determines the tenants of the land. Number three, you learn from Ezekiel 36 and 37 that Israel will indeed be unified and permanently atoned for in the land. That's right. Ezekiel 39, Israel as God's people will all receive salvation in the land of Israel that God said. Yeah. Isaiah 43, 5 and 6, you know that Israel will always be brought back to the land. Guys, it doesn't matter what has to happen between now and then. God's plan is always for them to be in the land of Israel that he said they were going to have. Jeremiah 31, 35 through 36. Israel will never cease to be a nation. It doesn't matter what the historians have said in the past or what the satanic schemes of the enemy and of Satan himself say he will do to destroy them. No, Israel's never going to cease to be a nation, and you know that from Jeremiah 31. Finally, number seven is Psalm 83. Satan is always working against God's people, his place, and his plan. And that's because God announced it for him. He said, this is what I'm going to do, and you can't do a damn thing to stop me. But Satan will never be able to stop the everlasting plan of Adonai. The plan of God is set, church, and it cannot be renegotiated. Guys, it does not matter who has claimed stake to the land, who currently lays claim to it. Adonai owns it. He determines its residence, and he says that it belongs to the descendants of Abraham forever and ever. Just on a side note that is incredibly related to what we're talking about. We have studied and we are painfully aware of the time in history that was prior to 1948. A time prior to the tune of thousands of years where God's eternal promises for Abraham and his offspring, well, they looked hopeless. In fact, most of the church world that claimed to worship that Jewish Messiah and claimed to live by the word of God, well, they claimed also that Maybe God's promises need to be renegotiated. It was faithlessness. 
Whatever that looked like in 1948, God turned all of that upside down. And finally, with the manifestation of Israel back in the land, well, we finally got a lot of our brothers back on our side. Many Jews were resettled back in that land in a single day. Do you realize that we're now 75 years past that point this year? 75 years later, we've seen the promise of God revived and manifested in a very physical way. Church, it's certainly not the time to shrink back and leave the natural-born family of God to fend for themselves in this time while Satan incites all of the neighboring nations and indeed the entire world against God's people, his place, and his plan. It's not the time to do that, saints. Your salvation is determined by the way that you stand with Israel, the way that you fight for Israel's promises alongside them, and the way that you yourselves refute all who would entice the nations of the world against the plan of Adonai in any way. Yeah, we'll refute them all. Today, we don't have time to teach the book of Daniel or Matthew 24. The message of the gospel has always been Israel-dependent, and salvation only comes through Abraham's offspring. Only. You should be aware that Daniel 2 and 7 depict beasts coming on the earth, three of which have already passed. They are representative of a very real and literal empire, or very real and literal empires that dominated the biblical world. A fourth beast is at hand and yet to be fully manifested on the earth. This will be followed by the very real kingdom of God, which is the restored and glorified Israel, ruling and reigning with Messiah at the head, coming on the earth. This is the meaning of Jesus' prayer, thy kingdom come. come on. Where we stand today is that after nearly two millennia, Israel has returned to the land. The historical significance of that cannot be overstated, that Israel is an entity on the earth. Why? Because salvation comes through Israel. The modern establishment of Israel is the initiation of prophecy, and they will ultimately be cleansed and reunified at the return of Messiah. And at his return, they will never be uprooted again. So before we reach this ultimate fulfillment, fulfillment, we must stand firm through the times of the fourth beast, the beast that will seek to completely devour Israel and the rest of God's children who obey the commands and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now is our time. Say our time. Our time. Now is our time to stand by Israel in the great trial that is coming on the earth. Saints, we want to take a second to zoom in on Daniel 9 because it depicts the hardships that still are ahead of us. But also in vivid clarity, it depicts the promises of God. And it is a part of our foundation's teachings that all men should understand as we enter the last days. The accomplishments of the 77s. So this is subsequent to the conquering of the fourth beast by Messiah. An end will be put to transgression. Meaning all willful rebellion will be removed from Israel. An end to sin, all wrong or sinful conduct. An end will be brought to all liability or guilt, meaning all wickedness will be atoned for. Everlasting righteousness, permanent right standing with God will be brought to Israel. 
There will be a sealing up of vision, a sealing up of prophecy, and an anointing of the most holy. Saints, this is what is on the other side of what must be faced. This is the ultimate destination of Israel. And for you to experience these things, an end of transgression, an end of sin, complete atonement, and everlasting righteousness, well, it must be along with Israel. Make no mistake, we are in days where trouble is increasing. But we must stand as those who know the ultimate outcome and advance of what Israel's restoration will be and those who stand. The Antichrist and the Antichrist religion will seek to destroy Israel and those who have been adopted alongside Israel by faith in a Jewish king. Look, we don't need, feel the need to address the modern heresy of rapture at this point in time. Frankly, we have hundreds of hours of teaching and preaching on it, and the only source text you need is to sit and read your Bible. We stand at the door of Israel's greatest trial and also Israel's total and complete salvation. As we said before, we're at the beginning of birth pains, not the final battle. But how small is our strength if we wilt before we've actually hit the labor? I want to say boldly, LCM and the One Association will not faint. We will not faint now. We will not faint then. We will stand until the end with God's chosen people. The only way that we or anyone else will experience salvation is by being there alongside her in her time of trial. Guys, the Antichrist figure is an incredible, incredible and necessary revelation for all of us to have. We're about to hit two passages in 1 John. And we need you to tune in to this next portion. We're going to hone in on the Antichrist here. We're going to hone in on Satan's plan that he is enacted since the very beginning and that is manifesting in our times in a greater measure than ever before. Turn to 1 John chapter 2 with us. This revelation is a revelation that is sweeping across the world at an alarming pace. As you hit 1 John 2, land on verse 20 and read this with me. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Ooh, that's interesting reading through the surahs of Islam. Who is the liar? It is the man who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Listen to this next line. Such a man is the Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Now turn a couple pages to chapter 4 in the same book, and we're going to start in verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Verse 3. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. Man, how shot can you get? This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. I want to boil this down 
for you real quick before we move forward. According to John, the Antichrist, the ultimate culmination of this Antichrist spirit is defined by two main attributes. In addition to lying and deceiving, the first major attribute is denying that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, acknowledging Jesus as a prophet is no problem. But the Antichrist spirit denies the sonship of Jesus the Messiah to Adonai. Number two, the second major facet of the Antichrist spirit is denying God himself as the Father. Man, we're going to dig into both of these here in one second, and Pastor Peyton is going to help us. But according to John, this spirit was already at work in the world, but it would increase and get to a greater culmination as a greater manifestation of the Antichrist spirit got stronger and stronger and stronger as the whole world prepared for an Antichrist. Yeah, so the Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, as well as many other corruptions of the original gospel, they're whorish by definition, but they don't deny that Jesus is the Son of God or deny that God is a Father or God as the Father. Islam, however, expressly denies that God can have a son or that God can be a father. Just to give you a visual, we put it on a slide for you. It's titled, Allah is not a father and cannot have a son. Listen to these surahs from their text. Surah 19. They said, the most gracious has begotten a son. I wonder who they is. Who is they? Hmm. People of the book. That's right. That's Jews and Christians. People of the book is defined in these surahs in the Quran over and over and over and over again as Jews and Christians. What do you think Satan knows? He knows that those who believe in Messiah and those who are the foundation of everything are on the same team. And they live and exist and produce children in order to destroy that according to their religion. And this is what the surah comments on what Pastor Nick is talking about. You have uttered a gross blasphemy. The heavens are about to shatter. The earth is about to tear asunder. And the mountains are about to crumble because they claim that the most gracious has begotten a son. It is not befitting the most gracious that he should beget a son. How about surah 930? The Christians call Christ the son of Allah. That is, saying, that is a saying from their mouth. In this, they but imitate what the unbelievers of old used to say. Allah's curse be on them. How they are deluded away from the truth. So while we're speaking about it, we'd like to bring your attention to another fulfillment of the ages that is expressly stated in Revelation 20. Revelation 20, verse 4. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had be, been beheaded because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. 
Saints, for centuries, men have read John's writings and tried to contrive it in some kind of mystical sense to apply to their enemies of their day. I honestly don't fault them for framing the Catholic Church as the Antichrist figure, because as John says, there have been many Antichrists. But there's no honest reading of John that tells you in the Peshat or the plain language that any entity that recognizes Jesus as the Son of God can be the Antichrist. Only Islam, specifically in their writings, expressly denies it in agreement with what John said would happen. Now think about what we just read. Catholics, they're not cutting people's heads off right now. When you hear about a bombing, you don't immediately think, oh, it's the Presbyterians. (laughs) Germany, Russia, Rome, they're not beheading men for their faith. Do you know who is beheading Jews and Christians by the droves right now? Oh, yeah, that's right. That's Islam. We're not going to read it because I detest that satanic, unholy book. But Surah 8.12, Surah 47.4, teach the practice of beheading explicitly for all Muslims as a command that disbelievers must be smited at the necks if they refuse to comply with Islam. And the ones who remain are to be subjugated in the worst kind of ways that I'd rather not discuss at this point. Look, we want to be clear. Allah is Satan. Islam is the fourth beast. And Catholics are not beheading people. So it's time to get over your grandfather's theology and stare in the face the evil that is coming over the earth. Islam is dedicated to the genocidal act of killing all Jews and Christians. To call the just extermination of Hamas terrorist genocide on a national scale is a grotesque projection on the part of Muslim leaders and an intentional deception. They are hell-bent on genocide because their scriptures teach it. In your own time, read Deuteronomy 20. It's in many of your mezuzahs. You will discover that every single living man in a hostile city that has gone to war with Israel, every single man is to be put to death if they refused to surrender peacefully. No matter what you see on the news, according to God's scripture and God's word, everyone who lives inside of the Gaza Strip, according to Deuteronomy 20, and is an adult male of fighting age, is to be put to death. So if you see civilian casualties because they're being used as human shields, remind yourself of what God's word says rather than your modern sensibilities. Islam is a satanic religion handcrafted, engineered by dark powers to be the antithesis of every tenet of the gospel itself. Islam is ISIS and Hamas. They are not deviant. ISIS and Hamas are orthodox Muslims who carry out exactly what the Quran teaches. Hear me. I love Muslim men. We have a friend named Cesar from Turkey that would die for us and us for him. But the truth is he's not actually an Orthodox Muslim, no matter what he says, because he doesn't practice what the Quran teaches. The decapitating of infants, the burning alive of the elderly, the raping of women and the raping of children are Orthodox practices of Islam that are not only endorsed, but are taught and propagated because it is the Antichrist religion. These are all normative and required practices 
within the orthodox application of Islam. There are men and women trapped all over the world in the slavery of what Islam is right now. They have never been given the opportunity to see a real Christian, to hold a Bible in their hands. And we must see the gospel reach them. But make no mistake, the religion of Islam itself is the manifestation of evil itself in the creation. We're about to pick up something that all of you should pay careful attention as Pastor Nick reads. We're going to transition to reading a quote that we have on a slide for you. It's from a man like many of the founding fathers of this nation who had seen the world, who had seen many of the evils of Islam and actually founded this nation as a combatant against those evils to make sure that the foundation of this nation would never cave to the evils of Islam. Well, they were, they were pretty good for a couple hundred years, huh? Look, this man here on this slide with the quote, stood against the foremost face of evil up to his point in time, which was Nazi Germany. We're going to hear Winston Churchill's full comment about what he saw in Islam as he traveled the world, knowing that he faced the regime that killed six million Jews. That we know about. He faced Nazi Germany. He, fixed, he faced those men who killed six million plus Jews in his day. But when he faced Islam, this is what he said. How dreadful are the curses which Mohammedanism, which is Islam's, Islam, Muslims, lays on its votaries. Besides the fanatical frenzy, which is as dangerous in a man as hydrophobia in a dog or rabies. Rabies. There is this fearful, fatalistic apathy. Wow. The effects are apparent in many countries. Improvident habits, slovenly systems of agriculture, sluggish methods of commerce, and insecurity of property exist wherever the followers of the prophet rule or live. A degraded sensualism deprives this life of its grace and refinement, the next of its dignity and sanctity. The fact that in Mohammedan law, every woman must belong to some man as his absolute property. Do you guys know that? Either as a child, a wife, or a concubine. Listen to this must delay the final extinction of slavery until the faith of Islam has ceased to be a great power among men. What that means is that as long as Islam exists on the earth, there will be a great practice of slavery throughout the earth. Thousands become the brave and loyal soldiers of the faith. All know how to die, but the influence of the religion paralyzes the social development of those who follow it. No stronger retrograde force exists in the world, says the man who faced Nazi Germany. Far from being moribund, which is approaching death, Mohammedanism is a militant and proselytizing faith. Yeah, you got that right. It has already spread throughout Central Africa, raising fearless warriors at every step. 
And were it not that Christianity is sheltered in the strong arms of science, the science against which it had vainly struggled, the civilization of modern Europe might fall, as fell the civilization of ancient Rome. So if you're still with us, say, oh yeah! Oh yeah! Because we're not done yet. We're going to keep going. Are you with us? If you're interested in learning about some of the other highlights of the religion of Islam, including wife-beating etiquette and its benefits, the Treaty of Hudaybiyah and the Muslim definition of peace, a proper stance on the morality of lying, or beliefs regarding the final holy war, we have a screen sampling of some of our previous sermons on these topics, and we have so many other resources for you. We recommend you write these down and begin to comb through them with an immediacy due to our present time in history and the days that we are facing and that still lie ahead of us. Just to look at this sampling, we have sermons on the truth about bacon and Islam. One of my favorites, I might add. It's great. It's great War sermon. and Wardrobe from 2014. Yeah. Islam, Understanding the Times in 2011. And Islam and Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur in 2010. Yeah, download them before YouTube gets rid of them. This morning we're not time to read the surahs to you regarding the efficacy of beheadings, lying for personal benefit, hatred and killing of the people of the book, that's Jews and Christians specifically, and so much more. You need to realize that there is no similarity whatsoever between Allah and Adonai, between Muhammad and Jesus or between the character of Jesus in the Quran and, the, and Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, that we worship as the Lord and God. Have you guys ever heard, oh, Jesus is in the Quran too? Yeah, but it's not the Jesus that we know as our Lord and Savior. It's not Jesus the Messiah. It's a completely different, fabricated character in the Quran. It has nothing to do with our Jesus. So don't you dare go into the Quran and point to scriptures that talk about the prophet of Jesus and try to convince someone trapped in Islam that this Jesus is their savior. This is the same Jesus that died and resurrected for their sins. No. Church, we stick to what we know as truth. We stick to the word of God. We do not deep. We do not dive and dig into the Quran and try to convince a Muslim to get out of it by digging into their hole. We lift them up and point back to the truth of the word of God and say, this is who Jesus actually is. When we're preaching to Muslims and what we've done in the past that has been monumental is we talked about a tree and the type of fruit that it produces. Just a brief overview of Islam shows that it produces horrible fruit. If you just look at some of their uh, original leaders like Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, and Ali. Yeah. These men were rapists. They were pedophiles. They were murderers. They were barbarous men. Compare that were... to the 12 disciples. Yeah, compared to the 12, all of the first four caliphs were murdered because of their violent and relentless barbarous lives. These men were the leaders of what the media calls the religion of peace. Saints, I think you can tell that my brothers are rightly passionate about this topic. 
but given that it's an hour and 11 minutes and we would like to tell you how you are the answer to the world's problems, we're going to begin to pick up a pace, the three of us, and we're going to engage with a psalm that you've been very close to but had not engaged with up to this point. So you're all familiar with Psalm 101, which is David's charter of integrity. And you're familiar with Psalm 103, that is one of the finest and utmost praises for the goodness of Adonai that exists. Psalm 102, which is sandwiched right in between, is a lament due to the constant and satanic desire to destroy the people of Israel. But it is also the most glorious of turns toward the ultimate outcome of Zion. Let's read that together. So I'm going to take verses 1 through 12, and we're not going to have a whole lot of commentary on it because you're going to engage with the verses. And as we do, remember, this is not about your Monday morning at work. This is about an Israeli man who is standing in Israel with the pressures of beastly Gentile nations trying to destroy him. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Let my cry for help come to you. Do not hide your face from me when I am in distress. Turn your ear to me when I call. Answer me quickly. For my days vanish like smoke. My bones burn like glowing embers. My heart is blighted and withered like grass. I forget to eat my food because of my loud groaning. I am reduced to skin and bones. I am like a desert owl, like an owl among the ruins. I lie awake. I have become like a bird alone on a roof. All day long, my enemies taunt me. Those who rail against me use my name as a curse. I don't need to expound on that in our current geopolitical setting. For I eat ashes as my food and mingle my drink with tears. Because of your great wrath, for you have taken me up and thrown me aside. My days are like the evening shadow. I wither away like grass. As when you hear this, with the illusion of the first time, this is an Israeli man bearing up under the overwhelming weight of satanic opposition that is the result of having been chosen by God. His bones are on fire. His food is ashes. His body is withering and frail and coming apart at the seams. Worst of all, his enemies taunt him all day long. I want you to think about the state of Israel right now, surrounded by nations that are chanting and cheering and taunting and begging for the destruction of her walls all day long. But hear me, saints, my brother is about to pick up and we did not come to this song because it ends in verse 12. Something happens in this Israeli heart. Something changes from bones that are like embers and ashes to a rising hope. And it is found in one place on earth with one God on earth and one plan that he has. Let's get the next verse, brother. Verse 12, but you, O Lord, sit enthroned forever. Amen. Your renown endures through all generations. You will arise and have compassion on Zion. For it is time to show favor to her. The appointed time has come. 
for her stones are dear to your servants. Her very dust moves them to pity. The nations will fear the name of the Lord. All the kings of the earth will revere your glory. For the Lord will rebuild Zion. And Hallelujah! And he will appear in his glory. He will respond to the prayer of the destitute. He will not despise their plea. Let this be written for a future generation. Oh, come on, it's prophetic. That a people not yet created may praise the Lord. Hallelujah. The Lord looked down from his sanctuary on high. From heaven he viewed the earth to hear the groans of the prisoners and release those condemned to death. So, the name of the Lord will be declared in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem. When the peoples and the kingdoms assemble to worship the Lord. Come on. We want to tell you this morning that we are unapologetic Zionists. And it's because Adonai is an apologetic Zionist. Amen. In the midst of the crushing weight of satanic opposition, oh, the psalmist is revived. Yeah. The psalmist is restored. This Israeli man is set on high by remembering and recounting Adonai's plan for Zion that he has had from the very beginning. Let's jump to the conclusion of the psalm in verse 27. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. The children of your servants will live in peace. Their descendants will be established before you. Church, you need to hear that Adonai's character does not and will not change. Israel is the center and the apple of his eye and always will be that cannot be changed, renegotiated, refabricated, or painted with a different brush. He said, she is mine and I've given the land to her Amen. and that will never change no matter who occupies the land, how many bombs they lob, how many arguments they raise. God has said it and it is done for all of eternity. Now, on your own time, read Matthew 25, where Jesus says, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. And consider who the least of the brothers of the Jewish Messiah are in the context that he stated. Saints, as you just engage with that psalm and the utter difficulty of the first 11 verses, and you can see the turn in the psalmist heart 12 on where he is revived and restored. That's because he remembered Adonai's character as it's summed up in verse 27 and 28. We want to tell you today that you are the answer to the world's problems. You are the answer to the cry of Israel. You are those who can stand and say, I remember what God said, even though it looks dark. Yeah. We must answer the world's problems by boldly declaring the ultimate outcome for Zion and standing with her during her times of trial. Let me reiterate, not speaking is to speak. To be silent is a statement in and of itself. To fail to act is an action in God's sight. Go read the book of James. We have a job to do like the Gentiles of old. We have a job to do like Ittai who stayed with the king even as he fled from his own son Absalom into the desert. 
Ittai was not just with David when he was in the palace. Ittai shined when David was in the desert land. Is any honest observer going to say that David was perfect while he was in the desert land? No, it was the result of sin and a refining process, but God established his eternal kingdom anyway. You would never know who Ittai was if it wasn't for the desert time frame. He was obviously already with David, but he stood out to the Jewish Messiah and to the Jewish people because he took his stand when it was hardest. Saints, you want to see revival in the nations? You want to see revival in Israel? Well, you and your sons are going to have to be the sacrificial offering in the desert. Having been adopted into the holy family, we will not rest until every nation, but especially the nation of Israel, has received the same free gift. Having been adopted into the holy family, we cannot now be silent as the world attacks and condemns the natural olive branches of Israel. Even further than that, it's our job, it's our duty, it's our responsibility to preach the gospel of this Jewish Messiah and the kingdom of Israel from Rome all the way back to Zion and Jerusalem. We must see the wayward sons of Ishmael turn to the God of Abraham, not some cheap substitute. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of the Jews. The God of Israel. And more than that, to grow to love God's people like they love his Messiah. This is only going to come through a radical transforming power of Christ at work in them. Yes. The religion that currently holds them captive is the Antichrist religion. So we need the radical power and revelation of God working through us in the same way that you were transformed. We're the key to unlocking their chains. We are the key to arousing some of the natural branches to jealousy. Our work is going to help turn the tables of the Gentile of Gentiles in the Antichrist religion. If you ever read through Romans 9 through 11... You ever look at those passages and you talk about, wow, the Gentiles are going to arouse the Jews to jealousy. Yeah, we, we kind of fit that category, but not really. Now, we're talking about the Gentile of Gentiles. We're talking about the most Gentile of groups of people going from a hatred an embedded hatred through generations to fall in love with the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish land. And the Jewish people. Amen. Guys, when Israel sees that, when God's people look upon that kind of transformative miracle, oh, don't you think that they will be aroused? Don't you think that they will want that same transformation? Looking at a people that is or was Islam, that now love the Messiah that they have rejected for so long, it's going to require us to have an uncompromising stance about the truth of Islam. It's going to require us to be uncompromising in our stance about the election of Israel, no matter where the world goes from here, no matter what your neighbor says from here, no matter what this country perpetuates from this moment. 
We stand where we must stand, and there's no other place to stand. We cannot win the world for Messiah by compromising His gospel and giving them a half-hearted message. So church, if we shrink back from Israel during their birth pains, what will become of us when we stand before their king, the king of Israel, on that day? If we shrink back now, what a sobering, terrifying conversation to have with the king of kings. That in Israel's greatest time of need, we set back on our heels and remained silent and stupid in the face of an approaching evil. LCM, the one association of churches, will not bend on this issue because we stand with God's people, his place, and his plan. Amen. We will not bend. We will not bend to any evil or any force. We preach Christ among those who want our heads so that they may turn, believe, and serve the God of Israel, the Jewish king of Israel. Amen. We intend to give our lives and the lives of our sons, our disciples, in Muslim lands. This is what it looks like to not remain silent. Come on. Because on that day, we want to stand before the king of Israel and said, I gave not only my life, but the life of my children and all my descendants after. Because I read in your word that you were going to redeem it. And I believed it as fact, even though I could not see it in the moment. Ultimately, we hope to see our generations in Israel standing under the persecution of the fourth beast at the return of Christ. But we cannot get there if we are not raising up battle-hardened, faith-filled, spirit-filled Christians and followers of Christ. Because the persecution is going to be unprecedented. This will be more than just battle over words and hurt feelings. This will be physical combat, physical persecution, the taking of all resources, but we're going to raise up sons and generations that are able to stand up under it. And we're beginning that preparation process now. We want to say that the gospel cannot advance without facing what Islam actually is. And standing with God's people. We must face the fact that Islam is a satanic, anti-Christic religion that leads masses astray. But we also must stand with God's people. God's land and his promises to the land and his plan of salvation for his people and for the whole world. No compromise of the truth. Say no compromise. No compromise. No compromise of the truth will be accepted before the great white throne. We stand against evil. We stand with God's people, with his plan and his land, and that's it. At this time, we'd like to go through Isaiah 49. To inspire your hearts. To cause what Pastor Judah talked about at the end of service on Thursday. The arrows to begin to rattle in the quiver. To begin to cause you to stir about the things that you must accomplish in your life. And the weapons of old that you must put in your children's hands for the generations to come. We're going to pick up in verse 22 of Isaiah 49. It says, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples and they shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. 
Kings shall be your foster fathers, and queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Church, look up at us for just a moment. Who you are raising up, your children and your disciples, the ones you will raise up, those who are captive right now to the satanic religion of Islam, you are being built up to go set them free, and they are the future kings that will carry the sons of Israel back to their land. You're raising those kings. You are raising the kings that will cause that reality, the reality of Isaiah 49 to come about. Now, if that does not inspire your soul to, to commit yourself more today, that I will not bend and I will not back down from standing with the promises of God, then I don't know what will inspire you. Because God has already prophesied in his word that there will be a remnant of people that will carry my sons and daughters on their hips. And can I say, I want those to be my sons and daughters that are carrying Amen. Them. Because I wasn't born into Israel. I was born into a Gentile nation. And the God of Israel had so much compassion. He called me out of darkness. Why wouldn't I want to go back and share the same salvation with them? Man, I'd give my whole life, even the life of my precious children for that. Verse 24 says, Can prey be taken from the mighty? Or captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken. They shall be taken. And the prey of the tyrant be rescued. Come on. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am. Am the Lord your savior, savior, and your redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. This is the work of our future kings. Amen. That they will take captives from the mighty. That they will rescue prey from the predator. This is exactly what we're building in this church. How serious do you think we are today about the foundational teachings? We are putting in your hands weapons of old because they are for our grandchildren who will fight the great conquest, rescuing, rescuing those captives. We will raise them up to be men who are fit to carry the sons and daughters of Israel back to Jerusalem. But we cannot give them what we do not possess ourselves. Which is why we are pastoring, preaching, teaching, pouring out our lives, saying, look at the foundational weapon of old. Take it and begin to fight with it. Begin to study it. Care about it. Value it. Because it's precious to us. But just as much as it's precious to us, how precious is it to the promises of God where he said millennia ago, this must happen. Can I tell you, I'm very passionate about the things of God. But it pales in comparison to how passionate God is about the things he said he would do. Lord, help us be passionate like you. May we have the mind of Christ in the days ahead. Before Pastor Judah brings this message to a point for all of us, 
wanted to jump in there and tell you that God's mercy is truly great to this congregation this morning. It's truly great to this association this morning. Thankful that our brothers will also grab a hold of this message. They'll chew on it, but they'll do more than that. See, we've been preaching this message in this church for over 15 years now. God not only just tipped us off to the satanic schemes that were against his plan, but he also showed us from the beginning what will be required of us in the days ahead. As his mercies are new for you this morning. Because it's not the first time that you've heard a message like this. It's not the first time that you've gotten that revelation. It's not the first time for most of you and your families to go through a ministry training class and to get even a greater depth of revelation over the course of 12 weeks regarding the topics that we are discussing and preaching about this morning. But I know for most of you it also feels almost like it's brand new. Our charge to you before we bring this message to a close is do not let this message fall by the wayside and be allowed to be forgotten. We're not just talking about you personally, men of God. We're talking about the way that you cultivate this kind of attitude with your wives and most importantly, with the future kings that reside in your home. You see, we're just the first of over a hundred families that are going to be plunged into this side of the world that we're speaking about. We're just the first. We're just the initial sacrifice. I want to challenge you that you are raising future kings that cannot and must not learn how to stand when they go over when it's already too late. You're raising future kings now that must learn how to stand when all the world is against them and when everything points to something different, a different kind of plan than what God said would happen from Genesis 12. Let me tell you, that is your responsibility. That is what God is pointing to us now. That is the conviction that you should feel as we're coming to a close in this message is that I have a revelation and I'm not going to set it down. In fact, I'm going to raise future kings who will not bow the knee to Baal, who will not crumble under the pressures of an antichrist empire, but who stand and who stand for Israel and who stand for the Messiah and the land of Israel. Worship team, you can have a seat. It's going to be a little while. Saints, in all of our passionate seriousness, and can you tell that we're serious men? I want you to know that you are our pride in life. The men that are in this room, the pastoral staff, the elders, you're all that we have ever hoped to create. You are the answer to the world's problems. There's not a man who came home from the conference that was sober in his own life, that didn't identify two, three, four areas of the foundational teaching that must be more firmly ingrained. What's at stake is that the world is about to lose its mind. And you need to be so firmly rooted in the word that it doesn't matter what you hear, what rumors of wars happen, what is going on around you, you have planted yourself. I'm going to ask my father to come up next to me. 
I'm not done. We're going through another passage, but there are some things we want to share with you as a family about a testimony. I'm not incapable of wearing a dress shirt. You guys know me. I like Western style, not suits. I think suits are gay. <laughs> I am a pork-eating Gentile who is the descendant of pork-eating Gentiles. But I bear the name of the Messiah's tribe, and I have the mark of his house on my right arm, and I have the menorah of the temple as a burning flame on my left. This is not an endorsement of tattoos. Hear me one association. This is not an endorsement to be a copycat. It's simply pointing out we are Gentiles who have been grafted into something. I did not take on the identity of Israel. I did not take on the identity of the house of David or Judah. But like Ittai, my life is indebted and bound to be where the king is. And he dwells in Zion with his people. Whether that is desert or it is a palace, that is where we must be. I bear his marks because I belong to the son of David. And I'm grateful to be with him, no matter what that means. The days of considering our comfort or the comfort of our children have to pass away. The days of the final birth pains are coming near and near. Like Ittai and the kings that carry those children on their shoulders from Isaiah 49. We are those who must answer, yes, captives can be taken. We're going to read Psalm 62 to you. Verses 6 and 7 in the Young's Literal Translation. O thy walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen all the day and all the night. Hear these words. Continually they are not silent. O ye remembrance of Jehovah, keep not silent for yourselves. And give not silence to him till he establish and till he make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Amen. These are the days that we can no longer be silent. It's not enough to generally know in a tribal sense that we're for Israel. These are the days when your actions, your words, your deeds, you must speak a message as those who have been grafted in that says, I will not be silent. I will pray, I will proclaim, and I will say, yes, the captives will be taken until Jerusalem's walls are established and she is the praise of all the earth because that has been the plan from the beginning. There is no other gospel. There is no other salvation. That is the message I have received. We say plainly to our audience in the room and our audience that hears us online, it is time for the Ittais to rise. Not men who are loosely associated with Israel. Not men who are trading partners. Not men who are thankful for what Israel did. But men who would rather die in the desert than be separated from God's people, God's plan, and God's place. We can and we must take captives from the fierce. We're going to storm the road from Rome to Jerusalem with every Muslim nation in between, every area held captive, because those sons are the ones who will carry Jewish children back to Zion. We are advancing into Europe with the expressed intention of taking a remnant of men, taking captives from the Middle East, and seeing the gospel return both in their mouth, in their hands, from Rome to Jerusalem. 
What we're on now is the precipice of things that will change the events of the ends of the age, and it is a privilege to be able to participate in it. Somebody say thank you. You could go to a church for the rest of your life where they just tell you how to be fat, happy, and blessed, bring you donuts and gift certificates. What we've just done, what they've just done, is tell you what our end goal is. Every nation in the world, everywhere we go, this message is our end goal, to stand with Israel. Is that clear to you guys? I left the conference knowing that we need to raise hundreds of thousands of dollars. But it's not what I'm thinking about. I left the conference concerned about one couple that is struggling to maintain their commitments to their team. But that's not what I was thinking about. I left the conference full of administrative burdens that relate to a conference. But that's not what I was thinking about. I was thinking about Daniel becoming nauseous when he realized what his people would have to go through. Read through the book of Daniel. You'll see it. The man meets with angels, and he sees what's happening, and he collapses because of the trouble that will come upon Israel. And I asked these men if they would take some time to remind you of what we should all be crystal clear on. Because we're entering into a time when all men about us will lose our heads, and we must not. Amen. I want to make a brief note about a couple things, and we're going to close, because if the message is too long, then unfortunately some people will not have the attention span for it. I was raised to believe that 1948, the repatriation of Israel, was essentially the end of the Troubles. The prophets do not bear that out, and I'm sad to say that. There's unparalleled times of distress still coming for Israel, which is why we must stand with them. There are many advocates for Israel, men that we love, that we admire, and I'm glad, they're, but they're wrong about something. There's an unparalleled time of trouble still coming for Israel. Faith in the IDF is not the same as faith in Adonai. I, I don't get that twisted. I want the IDF to succeed. I, I want them to succeed in all that they're doing right now. But that's not the same as faith in Adonai and God's going to bring the nation to a real and genuine faith in Adonai. Amen. Jesus spoke of a time unparalleled in world history, meaning that World War II will not be a parallel to what will happen. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? I, I don't want to spell it out more than that. That's why we're going into the heart of the Middle East to convert as many Muslims as we can, teach them to love the Jewish nation, the Jewish king, and carry Jewish brothers that may be captive in those countries back to Jerusalem. Daniel 7.21 says something that you need to mark in your Bible. And if I'm, nah, I'm not, not even going to address those that are sleeping. Uh, 
I'm going to learn to focus on the 698 people in a room that are positive. I'm growing. As I looked, the horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. You can't erase that from your Bible. He was defeating them. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until. Somebody say until. until. Until's are a really interesting thing in the Bible. You don't know how long until. You don't know what you have to go through until. You know what's on the other side of until because we can finish the verse, but you don't know what all precedes until. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. God's plan is a certainty. Who will stand with God's plan and the people that God said his plan would come about through and the place that he said it would happen, that is very much up to you. Daniel 11.32 He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. If you haven't figured it out, the pronoun he there refers to an antichrist figure. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. Why is it important to be holy? Why is it important to be scripturally centric? Why is it important to understand God's promises and God's plan? Because you'll be the first to be bribed, intimidated, or seduced away from the daily implementation of the scripture if you do not get this right. Why is it important to practice faithfulness in your marriage covenant? If you can't be faithful to the bride that you love or the husband you love, that you can see you will never be faithful to the God that you cannot see. Why is it important to practice an absolute unbreakable covenant with men and teams that you can see? He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But, somebody say but. but. Jen, this is a big, beautiful but in the scripture. The people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. If you haven't guessed it, that's what I'm counting on you for. I'm a pork-eating Gentile that was saved right after brawling in a parking lot and considering blowing my own brains out. And for whatever reason, the God of the universe, through the personage of Messiah, Jewish Messiah, showed up in my room and spoke to me audibly. I've given every ounce of my life to him since that moment. And I take this seriously because I know him. We are trying to warn you. We're trying to prepare you. It's all good and well. If the IDF goes in and does great things and, you know, we have another 20 years of relative peace and prosperity for Israel. 
What happens on the day that's not the case? We're preparing you to stand even when it looks like the people of God have been rejected and are losing. Do you, do you get what we're saying here? I'm for a two-state solution. I heard China want to broker a two-state solution. They want to move the United States out of the way and help Israel find a two-state solution. Vladimir Putin this week announced he is for a two-state solution. Their two-state solution is not a biblical two-state solution. Would you like to hear about a biblical two-state solution? The two-state solution that I'm for is where the first state is the kingdom of God given to Israel and ruled by the son of David, Jesus. State number one. State number two, the second state, are those that are outside the kingdom where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is the only biblical two-state solution that exists. By the way, the geopolitical two-state solution has been tried many, many times. Ask the American Indian how land for peace works. Okay? Oh, you can't find any? You got it. This is God's land. Did y'all get that? Yes. Doesn't matter whether the tenants are worthy. In fact, they were chosen because they're not worthy, but God wanted to display his glory through them. You ought to be able to relate to that. We're going to close with 2 Samuel 15, 21, and I'm going to speak frankly to you about my son, Cody. He had an announcement today, he and Wendy, about a baby coming into this world. Cody came to live with me when he was a teenager. Troubled. Showed up with a garbage bag of clothes and nothing else. Learned to read and write in my house. Learned to father in my house. Learned to be a good brother in my house. Learned what it was to be a husband in my house. He was adopted into our family and legally took our name. And he is as much my son as any other human being on the planet. How do you think Cody would react having been adopted into the Stevens family if the Stevens family were under all-out media assault, all-out slander, and Christians who are supposed to be in the family were leading the church? I want you to think about that because you are Cody in the family of Christ. You were adopted into something that you were not born into, the promise is not given to you, and in the favor of God, you were included into it. How loyal do you think Cody is to the Stevens family banner? Yeah, that's what we're talking about, except you or Cody and the family we've been adopted into is Israel. Do you think Cody believes that he's replaced any of my sons? He's just happy to be one of them and his children, and his children's children. That needs to be our perspective. Recently, Cody was with me when a couple of my sons were feeling spirited. Small confrontation with a security guard, small. Ah, we were feeling spirited. 
Cody stood with his father and helped counsel his brothers, not as somebody better, not as somebody above, but as somebody who was just happy to be in the family. That's the attitude we're talking about. You understand? 2 Samuel 15, 21. Bidetai answered the king, as surely as Jehovah lives, as surely as Yahweh lives, trying to appease both groups, I'll make you both mad. As surely as the Lord lives, and as my Lord the King lives. You notice the first thing that Ittai appeals to is the name, the covenant name of God. That's his first appeal, his first allegiance, his first commitment. But then he turns to the man that introduced him to the covenant name of God. You following me here? But Ittai answered the king, as the Lord Tetratomagron lives, and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for life or for death, there also your servant will be. Ittai knew that to express covenant loyalty to the covenant-keeping God of Israel, it could only be done by expressing covenant loyalty to the physical Israelite he was looking at. Do you get that? Yeah. Okay. That's why you learn marriage covenant. That's why you learn the covenant of brotherhood. That's why you start with those fundamentals. Your covenant loyalty to God is expressed in how you treat one another. As a people group, our covenant loyalty to God is expressed in how we stand with the promises he has made to his people. I'm not going to spend all day debating with people trying to redefine these promises or try to make yourself the recipient of the promise. That is so patently false, so ridiculously stupid. If you still believe that and you're in here, you should go join your brothers in a Unitarian church. But if you want to rise to understand this, if you want to take on what we would call the Ittai Doctrine, then we're going to do it and teach our sons to do it. We're going to do it in new lands. And Israel will always be the target because it's God's target. And David said to Ittai, go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite, Ittai the guy from the town of Gath, Ittai the kinsman, former kinsman of Goliath, passed on with all his men, and all the little ones who were with him. That's what we're doing here. We are going to stand with God by standing with his people, his plan, his place, and his promises. And we are going to teach our children's children's children to do that. And no loyalty to any nation, any ethnic background will ever supersede the one loyalty that the Bible spends developing in the nation of Israel. Would you stand to your feet? Do you need us to play music to gin up some emotional feelings for you? No. 
our brother churches in the one association are becoming very unified about a great many things, which has positioned them to better deal with deviant doctrines, deviant behaviors, and all of the... The more we get to know our God and express that in loyalty to each other, the better we stand positioned in the darkest times that the world has ever known. We're going to send Judah, Nick, Peyton, their amazing wives, Pastor Massey and his amazing wife, and their little ones to extend the doctrine of Ittai. We're going to do it in Italy. We're going to do it in Romania. Brent Vincent is right now doing it in Indonesia. And Buddy is right now doing it in Peru. And we have our eyes set on India as well. And Pastor Hutchinson and Pastor Vincent are going to start to shore up that far eastern front. We have actual real vision given by God. I'm asking you to support it in two ways. With your children and with every material possession that you have or need to sell. Either one. And we're going to do it. Would you all join hands? We could have had Justin preach about a love for Israel, but that would have been obvious. So we had men who have a heart for Muslims preach about a love for Israel. That's intentional. Soon we'll have Justin preach about why it's important for Muslims to carry Jews on their shoulders. Islam is satanic. But the people are ordinary people in need of salvation. And when you've sinned much and been forgiven, you love much. The most persuasive voice I've heard on this in the last 10 days is the son of the founder of either Hamas or Hezbollah. I can't remember which. Hamas. He gets it. That's what we're aiming for. Shore up your foundation. Amen. Know your God. Do not be so arrogant as to think that you can't be seduced away, flattered away, or that you know him so well right now that no matter what happens in the world, you won't get confused. Shore up your foundation. Father, we're asking for a divine and sovereign move in your nation that more than trusting in their military might, they would trust in your arm to work through their defense as a nation. Lord, during the difficult days that are undoubtedly ahead, if not in this war, in wars to come, we are praying for your revelation, for your outpouring of a spirit of sanctification upon your people. Lord, we're also asking that you would anoint us to see men from every one of the hostile nations in the Middle East surrounding Israel fall in love with you and be a testimony towards envy. Father, we're asking now unashamedly that you anoint us for that purpose, that you, through the body of Christ, would fund us for that purpose. We love you 
And like Ittai, wherever you say to be, we want to be. Wherever you go is where we want to go. Lord, knees trembling, hearts wavering, and yet with a faith that is founded on the surest promises that have ever been given at any time, we say long live the future kings. Amen and amen.